0: Time is now 6 p.m. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, October the 25th, 2023. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
1: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. In tonight's news, a Dane County safety coalition finds that the racial disparities in traffic injuries and deaths are consistently rising.
0: Activists are saying new federally funded hydrogen hubs may raise carbon emissions in Wisconsin.
1: An organizer with Wisconsin Watch's new union shares his perspective.
0: And in the second half of the show, the Wisconsin Farmers Union is prioritizing labor and climate advocacy. We'll revisit a very busy October of 1960 and a busy weekend of weather coming up. I'll have all the details. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening.
1: Republican state lawmakers have advanced a trio of constitutional amendments that would change rules surrounding elections just a year ahead of the 2024 presidential election, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The first proposal would enshrine the state's voter ID requirement, enacted in 2011 by former Governor Scott Walker, into the state constitution. If approved a second time by the state legislature next year, that proposal could be put on the ballot for voters to decide in 2025. The second proposal would bar municipalities from allowing people who are not U.S. citizens to vote. Though non-citizens already can't vote in federal elections, Wisconsin's constitution does not explicitly bar municipalities from allowing non-citizens to vote in local elections. That proposal was already approved once last year by the state legislature, and this week's second approval allows the proposal to move on to the ballot for voters to decide as soon as 2024. The third proposal would forbid municipalities from accepting private donations to run elections. That comes after Wisconsin's five biggest cities received a combined $6.3 million in 2020 from a nonprofit group to help administer safe elections during a pandemic. That donation from the Center for Tech and Civic Life was largely bankrolled by Mark Zuckerberg and became the subject of GOP ire in the 2020 presidential election. Madison's $1.2 million share of the donation went largely towards providing hazard pay to election workers at the height of the pandemic and to installing absentee ballot drop boxes across the city, which were later made defunct by the then-Conservative-controlled state Supreme Court. All three proposals are constitutional amendments, which are different from a regular legislative bill. Constitutional amendments must be passed in two successive years by the legislature and then can be put on the ballot. If voters approve a constitutional amendment, it's immediately enshrined in the state constitution and the governor cannot veto it.
0: After more than six hours of public comment and debate today, the state's natural resources board has approved an updated wolf hunting plan. The new plan does not set a hard cap on Wisconsin's wolf population as had been urged by Republican lawmakers and interest groups. Instead, the plan calls for maintaining the current population of wolves while allowing regional offices to set their own policies depending on the local population of wolves. Advocates say the new plan better accounts for wolf populations across different areas of the state. It's the first update to the rules dictating wolf hunting in Wisconsin since 1999. That plan included a hard population cap, The new plan has been the subject of fierce partisan debate, and the proposal on the change drew 3,500 public comments.
1: A labor impasse for dock workers has become a nautical can't pass. More than 100 ships are waiting to pass through ports that connect the Great Lakes after hundreds of Canadian marine workers walked off the job. The move shuts down the St. Lawrence Lawrence Seaway, a major corridor for vessels transporting goods to or from the Great Lakes. The 361 workers represented by Unifor, Canada's largest private sector union, went on strike on Sunday. That was after the union gave management a 72-hour notice of an organized shutdown after failing to reach an agreement on wages. Each year, the St. Lawrence Seaway handles approximately 40 to 50 million tons of cargo. Half of that travels to or from international ports in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. About 2.3 million tons of cargo moved through Milwaukee's port last year. That port's director tells Wisconsin Public Radio that while no ships are currently stuck at the port, Vessel owners are unlikely to send ships while a strike is ongoing, and a prolonged shutdown could have a negative impact on revenue.
0: Access to American Family Insurance's online resources remained hampered today due to what the company is describing as a service outage. In an online statement, AmFam states that they had shut down several business systems as a precautionary measure after detecting what they describe as an unusual amount of activity on their network. The shutdown also affected the company's Spark building on East Washington Avenue, which houses the co-working space starting block. AMFAM told the State Journal on Friday that it had not found any breaches of customer data and were investigating with the help of internal and third-party experts. The company says there will be no penalties to customers for late payments during the outage. American Family isn't the only local business to face unusual activity. Last week, as you may remember, Quick Trip announced that it had been the victim of a cyber attack and is still struggling to grapple with aftershocks.
1: The first person has announced their candidacy for Dane County Executive following Joe Parisi's announcement of his early resignation and retirement next spring. Madison Alder, Regina Vitavir, who represents the city's west side on the Common Council, announced her candidacy yesterday. She is also a manager in the state public health program and has a PhD in biology from UW-Madison. Parisi will resign his term early as county executive in May of next year. That late date prevents the position from being on the April 2024 spring election ballot and kicks off a complicated process to figure out who will finish out Parisi's term. First, the chair of the Dane County Board will appoint and the full board will need to confirm an interim executive to serve from May through November. In November, a special election to finish out the term until spring will be on the ballot and the regular term will be up for election in April 2025.
0: The property manager of The Harmony, an apartment complex on Madison's east side that was the site of a fatal shooting of a 15-year-old girl earlier this month, has been fired, reports NBC15. That's after the city attorney's office had urged the firing of the property manager. That recommendation came in a corrective notice sent to the owners of the Harmony Apartments following the shooting. And it urged the property manager's termination immediately, alleging she had been linked to one of the homicides and one of the shootings at the complex. NBC 15 reports that the fired employee maintains that she is being used as a scapegoat and was not connected to the violence. No arrests have yet been made in the killing of the 15-year-old girl. The city attorney's office along with elected officials have been using property owners have been urging property owners Royal Capital to take action on other recommendations to improve security. If not the city could seek legal means to take ownership out of the company's hands.
1: A Madison School Board member is criticizing district administration for deciding to change start and dismissal times for some students without consulting the Madison School Board. MMSD board member Nikki VanderMuelen tells Channel 3 that the district administration quote, overstepped. She did not criticize the decision itself or that its implementation will take place less than two weeks after the announcement. District administration announced changes to the start and dismissal times for some elementary and middle schools earlier this week. The change in times will go into effect in a week and a half on November 6th. Two elementary schools will start 50 minutes later, and middle schools will start at 9am. The changes in schedule are an attempt to address the ongoing problems with the district's new bus system contractor, First Student. First Student says that it is working to improve the system and to hire many new drivers due to a chronic nationwide shortage of bus drivers.
0: And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. A coalition of community groups advocating for better traffic safety is out with a new report, which finds there continues to be disparities in traffic incidents for communities of color. Our producer, Faye Parks, has the story.
2: Safe Communities Traffic Safety Commission is a coalition of more than 50 organizations that works to make Dane County safer for drivers, pedestrians, and cyclists. Every quarter, they review data on traffic injuries and deaths, including, but not limited to, state transportation numbers. Cheryl Whitkey is the Executive Director at Safe Communities. And this last
3: quarter, we saw over half of the traffic crash fatalities involved African Americans, Latinos, or Asians.
2: That's up from last year's data, which still showed a significant racial disparity. In 2022, people of color accounted for 31%
3: of all injuries and fatalities in the county, while representing only 21.7% of the population.
2: According to Whitkey, these traffic crashes are, for the most part, dispersed throughout the county and not concentrated in any particular neighborhood. But she points out that many of the fatalities were within Madison city limits. So what's driving the disparity? Whitkey says there are many causal factors. Isolating those causes can be challenging. I mean,
3: in some cases, we see that there are lower safety belt use rates among people of color. In some cases, it could be related to, you know, less access to driver's education or things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on to try to address those issues.
2: Safe Communities has started a public safety campaign to increase driver's awareness. One reminder you might see while on the road, yard signs.
3: One sign says, you are loved, please buckle up. And the other side of the sign says, I am loved, please slow down. There are pictures of a beautiful little girl. This was designed by Lalita G., who's a local artist and educator.
2: The Urban League, Boys and Girls Club, Reach Dane, Commonwealth Development, the Catholic Multicultural Center, numerous black churches, a number of black fraternities and sororities, and many others have already agreed to post these signs outside their facilities. Safe Communities Traffic Safety Commission is also researching ways to improve system-wide issues like poor visibility and lighting and intersections with problematic traffic engineering. Whitkey says that she's grateful for the partnership between local law enforcement, nonprofit organizations, and citizens who care about public safety.
3: I want to thank everybody who's involved for their commitment to keeping our community safe.
2: Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks.
0: The time is 6.18, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. 2023
1: has been a banner year for labor organizing, with workers closing ranks across the country. And now, the nationwide movement has officially reached Wisconsin Watch's newsroom. On Monday, employees at the nonprofit news outlet announced that they formed a union. They are waiting to get formal recognition from their higher-ups. This afternoon, WORT news producer Faye Parks spoke to Jack Kelly, a state house reporter for the outlet and a member of the new union, to learn more about their goals.
2: Thank you for joining me, Jack. Thanks for having me. So kicking things off, can you tell us more about Wisconsin Watch for listeners that may not be familiar?
4: Wisconsin Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit investigative newsroom that reports on issues all across Wisconsin. It was founded about 15 years ago, and we have a series of publishing partners and news partners throughout the state. So oftentimes when you find Wisconsin Watch journalism, it's done in collaboration with another newsroom or it's been republished for free by another newsroom. We have offices in, in Madison and Milwaukee, but our reporting touches all, all corners of the state. Our mission is to increase the quality, quantity and and understanding of investigative journalism in in the state, which in turn helps and strengthens democracy. So that's a little bit about uh, the news organization itself.
2: And so I'm just trying to get some clarity on this new union. When did union talks start amongst the staff?
4: It's been an ongoing process for the past few months. And we announced on Monday that we had organized as Wisconsin Watch Union. And we're asking our chief executive officer, George Stanley, and members of our board of directors to voluntarily recognize Wisconsin Watch Union, which will be a part of the News Guild CWA, Communication Workers of America.
2: Do you know what exactly prompted the move to unionize?
4: Members of Wisconsin Watch Union, we love Wisconsin Watch. We think that the mission of the organization is something that we believe in. And we want to help build a more sustainable Wisconsin Watch. And we want to see Wisconsin Watch be the best version of itself that it can be. And we felt that organizing as a staff would help us achieve those goals by strengthening our workplace, which in turn can strengthen our journalism. You know, right now, we're focused on winning voluntary recognition. And we organize because we want to help build the best version of Wisconsin Watch possible So, that has really been kind of the driving force behind this effort.
2: I've seen in some recent reporting that the uptick in people discussing labor organizing may have generally inspired this as well. Is that
4: true? You know, this is, it certainly fits. With a national trend, you know, I think we see it both in the non-journalism and journalism worlds. but I think that we look at a place like ProPublica, another nonprofit investigative newsroom who uh, recently won voluntary recognition and see just the amazing journalism that they've been able to do in recent years, especially in recent months. We look at them as a model, forging a very seemingly positive relationship with management and, you know, we're, we're one of them. There has been a big uptick in this. There are lots of newsrooms, it seems, that have been organized. I think in recent years. I don't know if anyone's group inspired this, but I would agree, as of, you know, with my own reporter hat on, that this does fit into the larger trend.
2: Right now, Wisconsin Watch's union is fairly small. Can you give me an idea of how many employees have joined, or perhaps what percentage of the total staff has joined?
4: So of the rank and file staff, so, you know, non-supervisory managers, folks that were eligible to sign union authorization cards, we had 80% sign cards. The unit itself covers about 10 people and could grow by a few positions. We have a few staff vacancies currently. I'm curious
2: too, it sounds like you don't really have specific demands. It's more that you're preemptively organizing to make Wisconsin Watch more sustainable. Is that accurate?
4: Yeah, I, I think that that is accurate. I'm sure that we will get into the nitty gritty of specifics once we get to the bargaining table. But really, right now, we are focused on getting voluntary recognition. And just as a brief aside for context, not background, the process is either be voluntarily recognized by leadership or us as the unit would have to file for an election with the National Labor Relations Board. It's an election with federal oversight where we as the rank of file staff would get a card and vote yes or no on whether to authorize a union, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just a more cumbersome process. We're really focused on voluntary recognition. Our membership is strong. Go to an election, we're going to get the same outcome. There will be specifics and we will get into the nitty gritty, I'm sure, as we get into contract negotiations. But before we can get to contract negotiations, we're seeking voluntary recognition.
2: So have you heard from the higher-ups at all concerning the voluntary recognition? I know that Wisconsin Watch's director, George Stanley, told the Wisconsin Examiner yesterday that the organization does share the union's values. Have they spoken to you at all?
4: We're looking forward to having discussions with them about voluntary recognition the dialogue is ongoing, but i don't I don't have super specifics about conversations and what has or hasn't been said to to share right on the moment.
2: And since the union was officially announced, have you heard from your readers at all? Are they supportive?
4: You know, that is a great question. We've heard from quite a few folks online, social media, the digital public square. We've heard from quite a few folks there that they've been supporting this. We've also had a number of fellow unions reach out. The, the Milwaukee News Guild has put out a statement expressing support for the union and saying that they hope we get voluntary recognition. The ProPublica Guild has done this, the Detroit News Guild. And so, you know, we, we have definitely been hearing support for this effort, which is really encouraging. You know, Wisconsin Watch has delivered for 15 years the kind of long-form, thorough investigative reporting that we feel Wisconsin needs. Our commitment as union members to serving people in Wisconsin through that journalism remains unwavering. We're excited to see other people have been expressing support for us. And, you know, ultimately, we're hopeful and very focused on voluntary recognition of the, of the unit right now.
2: So we've kind of already gone over the union's next steps. We know that voluntary recognition is really the first thing. Then potentially the federal government would get involved if that weren't to happen. And then, of course, eventually negotiations. Are there any other next steps that we haven't covered?
4: I mean, it's like the never-ending line, but we're focused on voluntary recognition right now. If we're not able to come to terms on voluntary recognition, there would be an election with the NLRB. After the election, if our effort was successful and, you know, the effort to unionize was victorious, then we would start to engage in the collective bargaining process, Actually, work on a contract. So, the kind of the first and critical steps right now is voluntary recognition, and we'll kind of see where, where we go from there.
2: Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
4: No, I think, you know, again, I, I, Wisconsin Watch Union members, we love Wisconsin Watch. We believe in the mission of the organization. And... We want to see Wisconsin Watch succeed in the future. We want it to be a sustainable news organization. We want to continue to deliver the journalism that can really empower people to make a change in their own community or, or affect change on its own. We feel like winning, you know, being voluntarily recognized and, and having voluntary recognition of Wisconsin Watch Union first step uh, in helping to continue to achieve that goal of being sustainable and continuing to deliver the journalism that we hope have positive change. Other than that, um, uh, we're we're in the middle of the process right now, and we're looking forward to seeing where, where things go.
2: Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Jack. Yeah, no problem. That was Jack Kelly, a reporter at Wisconsin Watch and a member of the recently formed union. He says that Wisconsin Watch's staff is invested in the outlet's mission, and they're working to make the organization more sustainable moving forward.
0: The federal government has just announced $7 billion to build hydrogen hubs, as they're called, and Wisconsin is part of two of them. However, groups that fight climate change say the developers of these hubs have to be careful not to increase carbon emissions in the process. Susan Potter of the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
5: Wisconsin is going to be a part of two new hydrogen hubs that backers say will generate clean fuel, but some environmental groups say it's a mixed bag. The feds just announced $7 billion in funding to produce hydrogen, which is used in hard-to-decarbonize sectors like aviation fuel, steel and glass production, power generation, refining, and heavy-duty transportation. However, as Patrick Drop with the Sierra Club warns, the devil is in the details.
4: And if it's done correctly, maybe we can create some truly clean hydrogen to decarbonize. And if it's done wrong, we have a chance to actually further fuel the climate
5: crisis. So we're really at a critical point right now. Wisconsin will be involved with the Heartland Hydrogen Hub and the Midwestern Hydrogen Hub. Conservation groups are pressing for so-called green hydrogen, meaning hydrogen produced by electrolysis of water molecules, using renewable power built especially for the hub. They don't want plants to rely on existing renewable power, because once it is used, utilities could turn to other sources, such as coal and natural gas, to backfill demand. Some groups say so-called blue hydrogen is more acceptable because although it uses methane, a potent greenhouse gas, it captures any carbon emissions and sequesters them. Drupp says the Sierra Club opposes blue hydrogen. He thinks society needs to reduce reliance on methane if the nation is to meet its climate goals. It still carries all of the same problems of using
4: methane. It carries the same problems of fracking potential methane leaks as you distribute the gas around the country.
5: Next, the Treasury Department needs to issue its guidance on the hydrogen tax credit that was created in the Inflation Reduction Act. That guidance will greatly influence how green hydrogen is produced and how the accounting for total emissions from hydrogen production is done. For Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Suzanne Potter. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org.
0: The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us.
1: Wisconsin Farmers Union, a membership-based organization that focuses on the well-being of family farms and rural communities, is now looking to prioritize resilience in the face of climate change. Feature contributor Zoe Sullivan spoke to their executive director, Julie Baumar, to learn more about the union's efforts.
6: We're at this summit on agriculture and rural resilience because these issues are very close to our members, and we've been working with the Wisconsin Academy and partnership to help promote education, understanding, partnership, and action plans over the last several years. So we're really glad that they're here in western Wisconsin and that we
7: could be an active part of it. What are you hoping will come out of the conference?
6: I hope that out of this summit that we can build new partnerships and we can increase awareness and also really help share the voices of the farmers that we represent who are really passionate about having a voice on climate change policy and interventions. And this is a special order of business for us. So that means our grassroots members have advanced this to the very top of the list. And so it's very important that they're represented here.
7: I think that that's not something that lots of people are aware of, that farmers are thinking about and prioritizing Mm -hmm. climate issues. How is that coming up with your membership and, and what kinds of things do they want? It's a great question. I think our members are concerned
6: about this for so many reasons. And I guess just to kind of give a broad sweep on it, there are so many different Philosophies, kinds of farming, and we tend to like lump farmers all together. And so, just recognizing that there's a diversity of farmers and political ideologies, I think that's really important to the context of understanding this. And farmers have an incredible concern for conservation, whether it's soil, water, or climate. I mean, this is their bread and butter. It's the health of their families, livestock. And so of course they're like deeply, deeply concerned about how the land and the water and the air are impacting their systems. And then secondly, our members have been very concerned for many years around conservation measures and are very progressive in the policies that they adopt. And so it makes a lot of sense for our membership to be involved in this issue. I think the commonality is farmers want a voice at the table, no matter what kind of farming they do. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be made the villain in this very tense debate and with so many issues at stake.
7: Can you tell me a little bit about the Farm Labor Solidarity initiative that you have? Absolutely.
6: So Farm Labor Solidarity has been an important component of our organization since its inception. It was actually formed by an alliance of teachers and farmers and bankers. And we believe in partnerships and collaboration to build power to make change. And so being a farm organization doesn't mean that we don't understand what our brothers and sisters in labor are doing. We understand we're in a common battle together. That's been a part of our history, but more recently, we've really revitalized the connections and the coalition building across the entire labor and farm spectrum to build alliances and also showcase the commonalities that labor has with farming. So farmers are not getting a fair price in the marketplace. In fact, they're not even able to make an income oftentimes. Labor also is not benefiting from the rise of corporate power and the wealth that is being generated in our economy. And so together we have a very similar situation, a location in the economy. We cannot make change happen if we don't come together because farmers are under 2% now of our population. So alone, they will not be able to make change. But together, if we recognize our common plight, we will see change happen if we can collaborate. And so we're working with labor unions and really helping emphasize our common concerns. We got behind the strikers and the John Deere strikes a couple years ago because we recognized that John Deere was hurting farmers with their right to repair stance and An incredible cost of machinery and that was hurting farmers, but their workers were not benefiting from the profits generated from their incredible profits they were making. So together we,
7: you know, try to emphasize common ground. Do you have any active collaborations happening right now? And if so, can you tell me like what that involves, like what you're doing?
6: Absolutely. So we have hired on Matthew Conti, who is working for us as a rural organizer. The emphasis of his work is on concentration in the agriculture sector as well as farmer labor solidarity. So he's reaching out again. We, we're trying to you know reestablish partnerships with UAW, teachers unions, and also supporting strikers on the line just a couple weeks ago in Hudson, you know, we have the rolling strikes going on in the auto industry. So talking with labor union leaders, as well as folks that are on the line right now to show solidarity and also really, again, emphasize common
7: concerns. I think most people don't really understand how pricing works in agriculture. Can you explain what happens in terms of like agricultural prices and why it is that farmers end up being stuck in the middle and losing out.
6: Agriculture economics is an incredibly complicated field of study and i guess the bottom line the layperson needs to understand that farmers often are price takers and not price makers so they don't get to set the price for their milk they don't get to set the price for wheat and corn those are set in international markets and trade monopolies i would say and so really those prices get determined on a scale that is so far above them that they end up taking what they can what they can get And so this becomes a very wacky system in terms of supply and demand as well. Overproduction can really drive, which we have in the United States, overproduction, especially of main commodities, can really drive prices down, which increases the efforts to try to increase demand on the international markets. Those can also wipe out farming systems in other countries and really undercut them, which isn't, I don't think, what hardly anybody in the Farmers Union wants, but nevertheless, These are the games that we play, right? That are that the scale's so big. And so the only way really for many farmers to survive in this system is to try to get bigger and get more volume in order to make up for those shortfalls. Or they have to try to decrease their input costs. And so this is why we also see increasing demand for labor from other countries also why we see larger and larger consolidations happening because right now it's really the economy is kind of dictating that's the only way that you're going to get operating loans and really be able to compete in the environment. So the economies of scale are wiping out a lot of the smaller farmers and that's exactly where our organization comes in because we advocate for small farmers. So if we want more farmers on the land and we want A more stable and diversified food system, we've got to make political and economic changes to get back to a way where we have more people on the land doing farming.
7: Is there anything that listeners can do to support farmers?
6: Absolutely. I think getting to know the issues and the significance of things like the farm bill, paying attention to where your food comes from. There's so many marketing schemes that make food appear as if it's coming from local farmers or it's sustainable or that you really do have to become kind of a student of your food and understand where it's coming from. Honestly, the easiest way to like try to help farmers receive a fair price is to buy directly from farmers. So direct market is all over find a farmer that's local to you look for the foods even in this in the stores that are purchased locally that's a shorter chain and therefore there will be more coming back to the farmer the further and further that farmers are away from the end producer and the sale the less and less they receive of that dollar so buying locally and from farmers really does support a better system and is there anything politically people can do I think there's a lot that consumers can do right now politically to try to make a difference, and one thing is to really make sure that the Farm Bill supports small and medium-sized farmers. Right now it tends to benefit the biggest players and, and does not benefit the smaller players. And so we need to make sure that it works for all farmers. I think the other thing that they can do is to make sure that they listen to farmers and that they understand their struggle and not villainize them in political decisions. And so farmers can easily be made to be a polluter or whatever kind of villain it is and recognize that they're going through struggles and to work with them on policy solutions rather than try to dictate from the top, which is just only stirring up, I think, more and more anger across rural America.
1: That was Zoe Sullivan speaking with the Executive Director of the Wisconsin Farmers Union, Julie Baumar, about their labor and climate change efforts. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure.
0: Well, we hit 78 degrees yesterday once the morning clouds attended to the passing warm front past north of us and uh, winds picked up with the diurnal mixing in the afternoon. That was not quite a high temperature record for the day, but only a degree short. This past overnight was equivalently warm. We dropped only to 58 early this morning, which is well warmer than the normal high temperature this time of year. Uh, Also not a record there, though, I'm afraid. Again, we were bested by a single degree for the record high minimum temperature for the 25th of October. That remains still 59 degrees set back in 1874. Well, so far, despite getting a lot more thunderstorm activity on Monday than I was bargaining for, we've managed to escape the really heavy rainfall with this current storm system, which is still centered out over the western U.S., but has been kind of ejecting over us piece by piece the last couple days. The primary warm front on the lead side of this big system, uh, which started out yesterday morning in a position just north of us, uh, that front ended up stalling out across uh, central Wisconsin uh, later in the afternoon yesterday in the midday hours, deluging the areas up there. Uh, across Trampolo and Jackson and Wood counties with training thunderstorms. Uh, Black River Falls picked up six and a quarter inches of rain, and uh, four and five inch totals were also common, so uh, flooding issues up there. I don't think we've got anything like that uh, heading towards us uh, with this next uh, run in with the storm later tonight and tomorrow, but an inch or possibly a little more than that certainly seems conceivable. Uh, I could probably refer to this actually as our last run in with this storm because it will be our last uh, major precipitation episode, this one coming up, but we will remain with a long wave trough position to our southwest as we go through the weekend and out into early next week. And it's not completely clear how ensuing activity that ejects northeastward out of that feature is going to uh, evolve. Uh, So far, the predominance of the longer-range modeling is indicating that uh, once the surface boundary and the accompanying northeastbound jet stream above it slide southeastward past us Friday, that would be the cold front, uh, follow-on waves are not going to be strong enough or positioned properly to rotate precipitation back northward into here, Uh, though areas down in Illinois are likely to get a pretty good dousing at least on Sunday, possibly Monday Monday as well with a follow-on wave. In the nearer term, we've got uh, one last round of deepening occurring in the uh, big upper trough that's out to our west. With the wave of energy over Texas and Oklahoma currently beginning to lift out towards the Great Lakes, if you have a look at the water vapor image of the continental U.S. that we have linked at the top of the featured graphics on the WORT Weather webpage this evening, You'll see that uh, jet maximum down there and its adjacent area of leftward spin inducing upward motion out ahead of it up over Kansas and Missouri. And showers and thunderstorms associated with that will be working into southern Wisconsin uh, towards midnight or uh, 1 or 2 a.m. and be passing probably still through the early hours of tomorrow morning. As you can see, if you look at the image, this is basically just one more round of uh, warm air advection-related precipitation on the warm lead side of the overall storm, which remains centered to our west. Although the cold air that's been coming down from the Arctic has now worked as far southeast as about the western Dakotas, where temperatures have dropped off into the 20s and 30s this afternoon. The uh, area of leftward spin that's currently rotating across Washington State, if you're looking at that image, is going to engage that cold air as it swirls eastward across Wyoming and the Dakotas tomorrow and then across uh, northwestern Wisconsin and Lake Superior on Friday. That'll rotate that cold air and its uh, lead cold front into here probably in the uh, mid to late morning hours of Friday, uh, at least from the look of the high-resolution models. Uh, That'll produce an impressive plummet in temperatures on Friday, although uh, with tomorrow's wave past us by then and the ensuing one uh, centered well to our north as it passes, we're not likely to see more than, I think, just a few incidental showers popping up as the cold front actually comes through Friday. But anyway, back to this evening. uh, Cloudy skies and continued southerly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour will uh, hold temperatures basically steady through the coming hours uh, up in the low 60s. Uh, Showers and thunderstorms will work uh, northeastward into the area again towards uh, probably midnight or shortly after, with waves of precipitation continuing then uh, into the daylight hours of tomorrow, probably through a good portion of the morning as well. Since this is essentially another warm frontal push with increased moisture, uh, tomorrow will continue to be uh, summer-like, with fast-moving showers and thunderstorms raking northeastward through much of the morning, then I think scattering out as we get into the afternoon. Temperatures may approach 70 if we uh, get enough lifting or possible breaking to the cloud deck as we get later in the day. And uh, dew points will also be rising up into the low 60s. So again, spring or summer like tomorrow in terms of moisture and warmth. Southwesterly winds will ratchet up to uh, 10 to 18 miles per hour. We'll stay mostly cloudy overnight tomorrow with uh, just some passing scattered showers still possible from time to time. Temperatures will again hold steady in the 60-degree range overnight, maybe in the low 60s on uh, somewhat lighter southwesterly winds. And Friday will start summer-like one more time, but uh, not for very long. Uh, I expect to see maybe a line or two of showers be passing uh, in the early morning hours, but after about 10 or 11 a.m., the Arctic cold front will begin traversing the listening area from northwest to southeast. And that'll veer winds, uh, southwesterly winds more westerly at 8 to 12 miles per hour and start the temperatures actively falling by noon or so. Temperatures may already be down, actually, in the upper 40s as we get on towards sunset, and strengthening northwesterly winds come up to 10 to 18 miles per hour. We'll drop to the lower mid-30s on veering northerly winds during the overnight. Uh, Skies will be clearing some, but staying partly cloudy. And Saturday, a fair amount of passing cloud cover along with northerly winds at... uh, uh, 10 to 15 miles per hour will hold temperatures in the low or mid-40s for high temperatures. Uh, clouds, uh, Cloud cover from the system passing to our south may actually prevent a freeze as we go overnight into Sunday. Uh, it'll also help us probably just hold around 40 for a high temperature on Sunday, perhaps just in the upper 30s actually during the day. And low temperatures will be dropping into the 20s thereafter, at least for a couple of days. And uh, high temperatures will be uh, probably in the 30s, at least on Monday, perhaps Tuesday as well. Uh, The temperature down here at the station on Bedford Street currently is 62 degrees. The dew point temperature is 59. Winds are out of the south at 5 miles per hour. Uh, Cloud ceilings have been lowering over the past few hours. It's down to about 800 feet overhead now, and the barometer's uh, steady at about 30.01 inches of mercury.
1: Time is now six fifty PM, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to October nineteen sixty for a campaign appearance by JFK, a campus appearance supporting Fidel Castro, and an unauthorized invitation to Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, Stu Levitan has the news from 63 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. All the
5: come- They melt into a dream.
8: Madison in the 60s, October 1960. On the 1st, South African singer Miriam Makiba closes the second annual Wisconsin Union Jazz Festival with an exhilarating set. Makeba has become an increasingly outspoken critic of the apartheid government since the Sharpville massacre in March. A 14,000 volt circuit breaker blows at 838 on the evening of October 3rd, plunging much of Madison into darkness for about 10 to 30 minutes. Calm prevails throughout the city, except on Langdon Street, where a group of about 50 young men try to enter a woman's private dorm but are rebuffed. Soon, a boisterous crowd of about 3,000 has gathered, blocking Langdon from Henry to Francis, singing Varsity and the Mickey Mouse song. When the lights go back on a few minutes later, police plead with the crowd to disperse. Some respond with eggs and water bombs. Wisconsin Student Association President Ed Garvey uses a police loudspeaker to urge the crowd to disperse, which it does after police declare an unlawful assembly. There are no arrests, but police report several young men for possible university discipline. On the 4th, the faculty's all-powerful Student Life and Interest Committee holds a special meeting and strongly reprimands the Wisconsin Socialist Club for sending and publicizing unauthorized speaking invitations to Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and Yugoslavian President Marshal Tito and suspends its right to present speakers for two months club president Ron Radosh calls the discipline fair. On the 7th, the Madison Redevelopment Authority approves a construction timetable giving the remaining residents of the Brittingham Urban Renewal District, the area bounded by Proudfit, West Main and West Washington, only two months to relocate. But the MRA has not yet approved a plan for what it wants to build there. On the 11th, The year's largest political gathering other than for a presidential candidate is a city council public hearing in the auditorium at Central High School. It's over Frank Lloyd Wright's Monona Terrace Auditorium and Convention Center. Close to 10,000 citizens had signed a petition over the summer demanding a referendum to, quote, terminate all plans for the project and directing the city to find another site. Now more than a thousand have shown up to see if the council will comply. After a tense six-hour session, with speakers about evenly split between pro and con, the council rejects the request, 13 to 7, and refuses to schedule the referendum. A slap in the face from the city council, the anti-terrorist Wisconsin State Journal editorializes, calling on voters to express their disapproval at the coming spring election, which they do, and at the election after that as well. From the 14th to the 19th, a city-sponsored door-to-door voter registration drive adds more than 5,000 new names to the voter rolls. The program uses more than 300 volunteers selected by City Clerk A.W. Barris, who opposed the project when it was proposed by Mayor Ivan Nestigan, statewide chair of the Kennedy Campaign. On the 14th, Carrie Lee Nelson, wife of Governor Gaylord Nelson, hosts members of 22 social welfare organizations at an executive residence tea arranged by the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom to observe Jane Adams Centennial Week, honoring the pioneering reformer and first American woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. On the 17th, an overflow crowd gathers in Great Hall for French literature professor Germaine Brie's first lecture as a faculty member on her friend, the late Nobel laureate Albert Camus. The next day, Kenosha-born Daniel Trevanti wins raves as the stage manager in the Wisconsin Players' production of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Our Town by Madison native Thornton Wilder. Trevanti is a first-generation Italian-American, who turned down scholarships to Harvard and Princeton to attend the UW. On the 23rd, Democratic presidential nominee Senator John F. Kennedy gets a rock star welcome on his only Madison campaign appearance, the third of four stops on a whirlwind day in Wisconsin. He steps out of his twin-engine Corvair to a cheering crowd of several thousand at Municipal Airport and steps into an open Pontiac Bonneville convertible, for a triumphant 60-car caravan into town. Hundreds of cars line Highway 51 and East Washington Avenue to wave to the motorcade, and another throng of 2,000 pack the square as JFK pulls up to the Lorraine Hotel, where hundreds more block the entrance and jam the lobby. After a brief rest and a light lunch, Kennedy makes it to the fieldhouse, where he is again mobbed on his arrival. They're practically hanging from the rafters inside, more than 12,000 people. And when Congressman Bob Kastenmeier finally introduces Kennedy, the foot-stomping crowd goes wild, yelling its approval. Kennedy responds with a slashing 30-minute attack on Republican nominee Vice President Richard Nixon, a far more forceful speech than the one he gave to a Green Bay crowd of 6,000 earlier in the day. The frenzy intensifies when Kennedy finishes, as hundreds of students clamor over the press tables down front to get to the charismatic candidate, delaying his departure for several minutes. The tumult is almost tragic. As Kennedy's limousine finally pulls away, it runs over a young woman's foot, thankfully without serious damage. On the 25th, pantomime master Marcel Marceau as Bip the Clown captivates a Capacity Union theater audience with a series of silent performances that speak volumes about the human condition. It was smashing a squad car after an afternoon of drinking with his secretary in January 1959 that got former police chief Bruce Weatherly fired. On October 27th, the council votes to sue Weatherly for damages to that city property. On the 30th, it's Fidel C. As an enthusiastic standing-room-only Trip Commons crowd welcomes back former UW History teaching assistant Saul Landau, now a national spokesman for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, for a presentation praising Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution. Over the Christmas break, a group of nine students will take an FPCC tour of the island, with eight coming away very supportive of the revolution. And on the 31st, the sophisticated and picturesque Manchester's department store at Westgate Mall opens for business, oozing charm and elegance. The two-story red brick structure resembles a stately home, with bay windows and a large lantern blazing over the front door. The suburban store has all the departments of the downtown flagship, except for rugs and drapes. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Aaron. Special thanks to feature contributors Zoe Sullivan, Stu Levitan, and Wisconsin News Connections' Suzanne Potter. And many thanks to Lauren Hicks, who's been our engineer these past several months. She's moving on to bigger and better things. We wish you all the best. Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
1: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by
5: This Way Out. Good night.